I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Jim Heffelfinger has been on the podcast before. We love having Jim Heffelfinger back. Jim Heffelfinger is the wildlife science coordinator for the Arizona Game and Fish Department. And I wanted to have him back specifically to have a conversation that challenges the rhetoric that quote-unquote trophy hunting, i.e. selective hunting, causes changes either phenotypically, which is the physical change or physical manifestation, or genotypically, which is a genetic change in wildlife populations in ecosystems around the world. And I wanted to have this conversation because it's the thing that gets thrown in our face all the time. And I wanted to talk to someone who knows a lot about it because he's done a lot of this work in white-tailed deer. And um, yeah, he's a super intelligent individual that knows exactly what he's talking about, which is exactly the kinds of individuals that we want to have hard-hitting discussions with. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Does <laughs> my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. to Jim Heffelfinger. Sheesh. <laughs> you got to grab time with you when you get it. <laughs> now I can cross off my to-do list that says give Robbie some dates. Excellent. No, that's good. It's good. Western Hunting Expo. You doing good? Yeah, really good. Traveling uh, like crazy? Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, this expo, I've got a long list of people and I'm checking it checking off. Like, same yeah. as, yeah, I've got a I use my notes app on my phone to say, I okay. do, exactly. Or I'll go in my calendar and the notes in the expo, 
I'll have that. Well, yeah. you can't like, because when you talk to people on the floor kind of scenario, it's almost like right then and there, I have to, once that meeting finishes, I have to go into yeah. my notes and say, right. this is what we discussed. This is the follow-up action, <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, otherwise you talk to 10 people and then it's like, Ooh, oh, you forget. You forget. Blended. So what are you, you are representing? Game of Fish here? Yes, in Game of Fish, our agency with two other Game of Fish people, but um, also we have a booth which is um, all Western, you know, Game of Fish, all Western state and provincial state wildlife agencies, or wildlife agencies. Yeah, yeah. For states and provinces, so we have this big booth, and we have all the biologists in one spot. Do people come by and talk to you guys about it? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. what do they, what do they come and yeah. talk to you about? They're like, uh, is anybody here from Nevada? And then we do have someone from Nevada and say. Hey, what about that that early muzzleloader hunt that you guys are talking about putting in and oh, okay, just okay. get all kinds of questions answered. Yeah. Well, or like, what are you going to do about the predators? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There's some perpetual. Has questions. anybody come in and said who's going to tackle feral horses here? No, but we were talking about that yesterday. I mean, especially Nevada. I mean, that's the epicenter of all that. Like, is um, it going to crescendo? This, or is it? Are we already beyond it? Oh well, we're just like way beyond appropriateness. But I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, horses are pretty hardy, and so it's not like a deer population. But like, oh, they're running out of forage, and then they're going to come back down. They're just really hardy, and they can just keep destroying habitat mm. and still live. That's a shit. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those topics that nobody ever, nobody <coughs> wants to even tackle, right? It's I like, gave it one time. There was a um, in Vegas. There was a, a symposium and a whole session on on wild horses, and I gave a talk on how you're supposed to manage ungulate populations mm, generally. Like, Right, and, and how we're not doing that with horses. And the guy after me was, he had a horse meat processing plant in Chihuahua. And his title of his talk was Feeding Indigent Families with uh, Abundant uh, Protein. He's talking about, why don't you guys just kill all these horses and feed people that can't afford meat? <laughs> it, was a, it was an interesting talk because that's what he did for a living. He slaughtered horses sure. in Mexico. Mexico, Russia, lots of countries consume tons of horse meat. Yeah. So he was just like, there is a solution to this. There's a there's a solution. But horses in North America are seen as pets. They're not seen as livestock. That's well, same thing as feral cats. You know, cats are obviously have this anthropomorphic <coughs> bit into them, which naturally so. <coughs> but um, they they're a nuisance. They are a you know most prolific biodiversity killer in the world. Yep. Arguably. Yep. And 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 probably the most popular on Instagram videos. <laughs> True, true. Well, Jim Heffelfinger, welcome back to the Blood Origins podcast. Uh, for those who don't know who you are. Yep, great to be here. Um, I'm Jim Heffelfinger. I'm the Wildlife Science Coordinator for Arizona Game and Fish Department. Um, I'm here at the Expo to represent the department, but also we have a, a, a chair of Western States Mule Deer Working Group uh, meeting the day before the Expo starts. And so we have, we have people from Mule deer people from uh, all western states and, and provinces coming in to talk mm -hmm. about conservation and, mm -hmm. and issues that we need to deal with. Mm -hmm. Well, the first podcast we did was on Mexican red wolves, right? No. <laughs> God. <laughs> I'm no, I'm joking. I'm joking. <coughs> Mexican you learned, wolves. Yeah, I thought you were slipping. <laughs> no. I, uh, I have learned my lesson from you. Thank you. I appreciate that calling out. S ceremony yeah there's confusion between, i mean red wolves and mexican wolves are both small and endangered and southern so mm -hmm. there's, there's mm -hmm. a lot of confusion with that no no we got our we got our ducks in a row now <laughs> but what we want to talk about today is something that is a piece of rhetoric that is pushed against hunting specifically from the anti-hunters perspective but there's also a couple of scientists that are in the hunting world that 
believe this to be true. Mm-hmm. And so let me set the scene. The rhetoric is that trophy hunting, and this is used against us in Africa specifically, but there's lots of examples around the world uh, that people use. That trophy hunting, because we selectively take old, mature males, that there is a, a chance, their rhetoric is, that we are driving a selective pressure in the population which leads to smaller male mature males. Mm-hmm. Let me start by that and saying true or false. That is true that that is the narrative um, for okay. sure. And it's, not, and it's not a notion that's completely false. I mean, we, we turn wolves into poodles and wolves into chihuahuas. So there's no doubt you can, if you select the breeders and you selectively breed different breeders, you can completely change the form of something. The whole question is, it's a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have people selectively breeding a new breed of dog in a couple generations. That's incredibly intensive selection of who's breeding who for what trait. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got mule deer populations in Montana, and you have someone passing on a spike the first day and shooting a three-point on the seventh day. That hunter's selecting, Mm -hmm. but he's he's selecting an individual out of this giant gene pool. Not selecting a breeder to breed another breeder like you would if you mm-hmm. were really trying to make change in mm-hmm. physical characteristics. So, my uh, I've, I've published a scientific paper and I've given talks on this. The the thing that's important, the whole thing that's important to remember is the what kind of intensity of selection are we talking about? Okay. Are we talking about making a new dog breed, or are we talking about just taking an individual out of a population? It's, it's way different. Well, let me ask this: Is the are there examples? And I wouldn't. I'll once you answer, I'll. I'll push one example, you may even address it straight away. Are there examples of where trophy hunting and defined as which mature males has shown over time to, to see a, a, whether it's a significant correlation, a trend downwards of antler size as a result of trophy hunting? And I, I understand for those audience that are listening to this, you can't infor, infer cons- or causation here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so first of all, you, you said um, antler size. So let's get one thing out of the, of the way right away. None of this has ever been found in the deer family in Cervidae. Okay. We can dismiss that. No Completely one has ever out. Found. Because the antlers are renewed every year, so okay. that depends not only on genetics of the buck and mm-hmm. the bull, but on nutrition so mm-hmm. much and the recasting, regrowing every year. So, so it's horns, a different then. deal. So, yeah, so a horn, you know, a horn that grows continuously like a bighorn sheep, yep. that has a more, more, you have more opportunity for something like this to occur. So we can dismiss cervids or okay. the deer family. Um, it, it has not been any science to show that. Where it has been shown is in um, mostly in one particular population of bighorn sheep in Alberta. And, and this is the Marco Fiesta. <clears throat> Marco Fiesta Bianchette. Yep. And, and he's a really good ungulate ecologist. And he has a team of, of people that are, that are great ecologists. But they've been studying one population that's called Ram Mountain. And whenever this, this subject comes up, you'll see references to Ram Mountain. Correct. And that's their study population. And it's been studied for decades, very intensively. Nutrition of the animals, horn measurements. The, the population's about half tame. It, it will, they'll feed it into a corral once a year and take measurements and stuff. So it's a wild bighorn sheep population. But there's pictures of... of Marco with a bucket of feed in his lap and bighorn sheep are eating out of the bucket. So, wow. so you can get that visual that mm-hmm. we're not talking about wild um, northern Rocky Mountains in, in Alberta. 
that Ram Mountain population sits out from the Canadian Rockies to the east as an isolated little bump, and it doesn't interchange with the rest of the bighorn sheep. So it's an isolated population, which makes it an ideal study population, Mm -hmm. but it's a small isolated population with a hunting structure that's done there that's unlike 99% of bighorn sheep hunting in the country. Why do you say that? The, the way they hunt it. So they have <clears throat> they have rules, and, and Alberta has, in the past, had a lot of populations that have had what they call a four-fifths curl, which means that the ram has to have not a full curl in its, in its horn, but a four-fifths of a curl. And so what happens with that, and then there's it's unlimited hunting. So unlimited number of hunters can descend on Ram Mountain or a population like okay. that. And then they're hunting for, they can't shoot a ram unless it's four-fifths of a curl or more. Okay. So under that kind of intensive selective pressure, every ram that gets four-fifths curl is removed from the population. And not only that, what's more important and what some of their studies showed was the younger rams that grow horns faster get removed from the population because they hit four-fifths before slower growing horns. So their whole, the whole basis of their, their research was you're removing rams that have genetics for faster growing horns, mm. and you're leaving the rams that have slower growing horns. So in 2003, uh, David Coltman, one of the researchers in that team, came out with a paper analyzing the horn growth and said just that, that you're removing animals that, that horn growth is faster. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, through time, you're going to reduce the average size of the horn in the population. And he showed throughout a several decades. Because they're decades, growing slower through time. Because you, you only have slower growing um, males that are doing the breeding. That was the premise of it. So he published that in 2003. And it, it hit the media like a firestorm. Because mm-hmm. there's so many people that don't like hunting. There's a, a much fewer people that don't like trophy hunting, however they define it for themselves. Sure. Don't like trophy hunting. And when this news came out that, hey, hunters selecting the biggest horns in the population are causing Correct. A, a genetic decline. Aha, uh-huh, we got so, you. Right. It spread like wildfire. And, and Newsweek, um, the Nature, it came out in Nature, which is a pretty high-end oh, scientific yeah. journal. Top two, nature and science. <clears throat> right, right. And the cover of nature on that issue had a bighorn sheep, and it said decline of the fittest. Mm-hmm. And that was the cover of that issue of, of Nature magazine. N- Newsweek, and it went everywhere, but Newsweek had an article called How Hunting is Driving Evolution in Reverse. So this is the theme. Wow. And every reporter who didn't really like hunting or didn't know anybody that was a hunter said that's an interesting article. And, and everybody wrote articles. And I still get people that call me to this day and say, Hey, I heard about this topic. You know, can you tell me about mm. <coughs> hunters driving evolution in reverse? And so we've got to start at the beginning and go mm-hmm. through <coughs> all of this. But what's important is that paper came out in 2003. All the news media spread like wildfire. Five years later, the same author, David Coltman, came out with a paper. He was criticized because he didn't he didn't include the the influence of environment. Okay. So if nutrition went down throughout two right. decades. Horn size as a is covariance, go down. exactly. Yeah, yeah, with genetics. So he reanalyzes data and took into account um, the environmental effects, and he said there's still an effect of this intensive selection of hunters removing the fastest mm-hmm. growing horns, but environment had a much larger effect than than what I said in my original paper. But it was too late. Five years of sure, just being sure. in the media, and so yeah. nobody really wants the caveats that come come later. And then that same uh, team that led by Marco and, and it was a lot of his graduate students. Then they started publishing um, some papers that came out then, and, and they, they're working with the same population and doing more intensive research. And one researcher looked more intensively at the, the influence of an environment and, and determined that 27% of that horn decline they saw through a couple decades, 27% of it was nutrition. 
And what happened was that sheep population was growing through that time. And since it was an isolated little mountain, the population was growing. There was less nutrition for each individual mm. in the population. So there was this nutritional effect. And, and this researcher found that 27% of that horn decline was nutrition and only 9% was because of selective harvest. So we can't say selective harvest of mature males doesn't have any effect. It all boils down to how intensive is that selection? Are we, are we creating a new dog breed very intensively? Mm-hmm. Or are we just removing an individual out of the population and then there's a whole bunch of other individuals of different genetic doing the breeding? And, and so the scientific paper I wrote didn't say this is, this is just BS, it doesn't happen. Right. My paper said hunter harvest and hunter selection of what, who they sel- what individual they select to harvest is very inefficient mm-hmm. for trying to change the genetics in the population. And there's a whole bunch of obstacles that get in our way if we were trying to change the population. A couple studies in South Texas, two really good studies, where they tried to, to call lower quality deer out of the population. Yeah, but these are antlers. Right, they're antlers, right, right. right. But, but there's a lot of talk about, um, <coughs> hey, let's shoot the spikes out of the oh, population. Oh, yeah, the genetic, yeah, the genetic argument in the whitetail world. Yeah, but things like a mature eight-point, let's get it out of the gene pool. There's a lot of talk about that. So there's two good studies there, very good studies. They were aggressively calling anything that was below mm-hmm. average for a long time and could not have any benefit. So could, not, can, could not directionally move <coughs> a right, population the, the to show it. horn size, yeah. antler size. And so if you can't do it intensively like that, like they were doing in research, you're not going to be able to move the needle you know, just by taking the individual or not. So the, the main thing that's lost when all of these articles hit the newsstand is the fact that we're not, we're not, we don't have a four-fifths rule in 99% of wild sheep management in North America. They have a whole bunch of different hunt structures, but what's going on in Alberta is, is much, much more unique to other uh, sheep populations. And what's going on in most of sheep range is, is not that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's different hunt structures that don't apply that kind of intensive pressure on fast-growing horns, for example. Do, <clears throat> is there any other studies, and I can think of one, um, and I'll hold it. Are there any other studies that you know of that have shown any sort of correlation of hunting influencing genetic structure of males in any population any in the world? There's a lot of papers that assert that or report that. Um, and, and in my paper, I went through and talked about some of the problems. So there are uh, some papers, and when people write this, they add this string of citations. But if you're familiar with the scientific literature, you know problems with citing some of those things. And so there's, there's one with mouflon sheep, and the problem with that is they had different subspecies of mouflon sheep, and one had really big horns, and hunters focused on the bigger horn subspecies, and they showed the, the other subspecies was more common after a while. Well, that, that's not selecting an individual species or subspecies and changing its genetics. That's just removing one subspecies because it had bigger horns, and, and you're left with the other subspecies. Another example is someone compared reindeer in Scandinavia and uh, caribou in North America, and they found there was different hunting in those populations, and they found a correlation with body size and hunting intensity, but we're talking about different continents, different mm-hmm. subspecies mm-hmm. Of, of that animal, and completely different environment. So, you know, that was back in the 80s, that person published that, but it's still cited. So there's some of these studies, and then there's the one you're probably familiar with was elephant 
tuskless the, elephants. The, perfent, the percent of tuskless females. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the early, and that study that came out, it looked at some surveys that were done, I think in the late 60s, maybe, 70s, where they surveyed a bunch of animals and they recorded the percent of the females that were tuskless. Which Correct. Just and then they came back in like 2015, 2016, yes. I believe. And they did some other surveys and then they, they found that that percent of tuskless females had had in had increased no significantly decreased had decreased and they they said and some people attribute that to hunting, tusked tusked females had, had significantly decreased decreased right and it, most of that's probably poaching i mean it's not oh no there's no doubt in there's no regulated hunting because of the the massive intensity of poaching from 20 2008 right. to 2012 yep. indiscriminate removal so, now let me ask this because in my brain that study the whole tuskless elephant actually does show the Again, I, w- I don't think anyone has done the genetics, but because it was at such a large level, mm-hmm. right? intensity, the intensity, intensity, right? The, the, the intensity was key, right? The poaching mm-hmm. level probably took out sixty to seventy percent of the elephants, uh-huh. Very, all yeah. targeted around tusks. It doesn't matter what size; it could be five pounds to ninety-five pounds. It doesn't yep. matter. Yep. Indiscriminate, you know, take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could see yeah. that. Right. The remaining twenty percent population probably mm-hmm. had some sort of recessive gene somewhere mm-hmm. in the population that had tusklessness to it uh-huh. and that then sort of amplified through the population as it rebounds right right and so we have to be careful of saying you know that we can't say well this is just and dismiss everything this is just totally 100%. bs because you, you have to concentrate on the intensiveness like that that was in a situation where it was pretty intensive this ram mountain situation it's isolated it's unique my problem is you can't extrapolate those results to sheep hunting in North America. And a lot of people are happy to do it. A lot of people in academia writing scientific papers and citing Ram Mountain and talking about some papers talk about wild sheep. Hunters, hunters hunting wild sheep like everywhere mm. are affecting the gene pool. Other people are happy to extrapolate it to hunting. Big game hunters are ruining the gene pool. You see people write. And then other people, uh, there's, there's even some researchers or one in particular that talks about Humans' influence on animals worldwide is changing their genetics. And in some cases, they maybe are, but we're talking about the intensity of selection. So, Jim, has anybody looked at, is there a breaking point of that intensity where genetics do get manipulated? Yes, there is, but it's incredibly complex because it's not just a simple one parameter, like intensity isn't the only parameter. You have some traits that are highly heritable, which means if you've got, if you've got this one trait and the male has this trait, all of his offspring are going to get that trait. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's passed on mm-hmm. very strongly. Mm-hmm. And then there's other traits that are weakly heritable. And they found antler, antler size, like 30, well, there's a lot of different numbers mm-hmm. out there, but 30, 50% heritable. So some things can be weakly heritable. So a big, a big mature buck might have a whole bunch of younger offspring that don't have big antlers. It's just, that, it's not a very strong heritability. And so that plays into it too. You've got intensity of selection, but then really how effective is a male in passing on those genes for that trait you're interested in? Mm-hmm. And then what I talked about in my scientific paper was about 10 different things that I call obstacles. So for example, um, with whether you're talking about, uh, well, with, with uh, cervids, deer family in particular, the females also contribute oh, yeah, to 50 percent. Right, so the females at 50% uh, contribute 50% to the, so- the genetic um, material that's passed on for antler size. So right off the bat, you've only got 50% of the gene pool that you can affect. And so that's, that's an obstacle 
to intensively Has anyone looked at that from a outside of the servant family, from a horn perspective, like a kudu female, right, that typically is never hunted? Do we know? We don't know. We don't know, right? I'm not aware of anybody that's done on those kind of bovids, but even like bighorn sheep are bovids, but even there, there's no selection on ewe horns, even though they have horns, and and pass on some genetics undoubtedly for horn size Mm -hmm. to their offspring. Mm -hmm. They, there's... There's no one selecting on that 50% of the gene pool. Mm-hmm. And then you have, like we talked about, environment interfering with this clean connection between genetics and selection. So you have environment creating big horns and big antlers in some years and small horns and small, small antlers. So if hunters are selecting the biggest uh, male that they can get during the season, and that's another issue, they might be selecting on environmental influence. And then hunters aren't out there 24-7, like, much like the poachers probably were in the in the elephant example, hunters are out there sometimes for seven days yeah. and only during daylight hours, and, and they have sometimes other restrictions. <clears throat> Meanwhile, predators are taking animals year-round, um, disease, uh, winter kill, are removing animals year-round and 24-7 in ways that have nothing to do with antler size, big antlers, small antlers, big horns, small horns. You have all these deluding factors that get in the way of hunters being able to actually affect mm-hmm. the gene pool. So let's use Arizona as an example. What do, do we know what the population of desert bighorns are in, in Arizona right now? I think the, I, I haven't added up all those populations, so I don't. But our statewide population has always been six to 7,000 or so. Okay, six to 7,000. And we How harvest many? less than 100 rams usually. Okay. I don't yeah. know, can you do math in your so brain as quickly as? Well, probably 0.6%. Is that, if, well, if we said 1,000. Uh, 100 yep. divided by 7,000. But then... But point, then 0.01%. And then you think about, we have a limited lottery-style draw to get those tags that we offer. Mm-hmm. And so a person gets the tag, they get into a sheep population, and the way we manage sheep populations so conservatively, that hunter can take any animal. There's no four-fist curl or anything okay. like that. Okay. Can take any animal, and there's, there's a, a lot of mature rams, and they choose which mature ram they want to take home mm-hmm. and then and, and takes <laughs> take some skill to make that happen but mm-hmm. but they cho- and there's there's all kinds of other mature rams in the population so that's that's a very very weak selection you're just taking an animal that may that's has been breeding several years for sure at that size and passed on its genes and you're removing an animal and there's even uh, a person who wrote a paper that said you know even in a bighorn sheep population even in an isolated bighorn sheep population if you only have a few mature rams and they're responsible for, say, two or three mature rams in a small population, responsible for most of the lamb crop every year for three years. Removing one of those mature rams and letting some subordinate ram step into a breeding position probably increases the genetic diversity mm-hmm. of the future lamb crop. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not a good thing in a small, isolated population to let the same rams breed year after year after year for four years or so. So one of the pushbacks that we typically use from a rhetoric perspective is Taking that animal at a mature age, so let's, I'll use lions, for example, because a lot of people use this as an example, like, <clears throat> oh, you're taking these big mature males out and you're not allowing them to put their genes back into the population. Mm-hmm. And now with age-based quotas for lions pretty much all over Africa, except for, you know, wild managed lions, which are captive bred lions that are put in the you know, reserves for six months at a time, whatnot, and then somebody hunts them. Mm-hmm. You're going for seven, eight, nine, sometimes, hopefully, ten-year-old males. 
there, there is something to be said that that male has been reproducing since its reproductive maturity, which is probably two, three. And again, I'm I, someone's going to correct me here in terms of when not lions me, are mature. Not me <laughs> with lions. Um, but same for for sheep, right? It's almost like yeah. people forget that for the the four or five years before that animal was taken, it yeah. was putting its genes into the population. Yeah, and hunters hunting bighorn sheep aren't taking two and three-year-olds home. They're taking mature rams home that certainly have been breeding, uh, for sure. But then also, we we kind of think about only these big mature rams and only these big mature uh, white-tailed bucks doing the breeding and passing on their superior mm. genes. People think of it in that notion, but um, Randy DeYoung in South Texas did some really good genetic work and, and showed that a third of the white-tailed fawns in South Texas, and here's where you have this mature age structure, a mm -hmm. lot of mature bucks running mm -hmm. around. A third of the white-tailed fawns were fathered by one- and two-year-old bucks. Oh, so geez. they sneak in there, they sneak in there and, and get, breed yeah. a lot more. And then a whole bunch of the twin fawns had different fathers. Wow. So there's a lot more mixing, and there's a lot more younger rams and younger bucks sneaking in, getting some breeding done that we don't really think about. How pervasive would that be in a sheep population? I'm not sure in a sheep population, but still you have scattered bands of ewes around at, uh -huh. at varying stages of estrus during breeding season. Uh -huh. And you have these big rams moving around looking for uh, females that are near estrus so they can hang around and be there at the right time. They can't cover all those ewes in a, in a dispersed mm -hmm. population all mm -hmm. over. So I'm sure a lot of that happens. Mm -hmm. A lot of younger rams. They're certainly trying. Mm -hmm. I think from a lion perspective, certainly the territorial structure and the way that it's set up in terms of big males dominating prides. There's very little chance of younger males slipping uh -huh. in and doing what they do. Uh -huh. um, yeah. You know, I, we don't have the data, unfortunately, but I, I certainly would, I don't know, you know, I would say that <laughs> from an animalistic instinct perspective, if any male, regardless of age, is given the opportunity to breed, yep. they will breed. Mm -hmm. Yep. So they're going to have a section of their life where they're going to breed more than typical. Yep. Big elephant bulls when they're in herds. Uh, when, once they get ousted from the herd, they don't breed as much, even though they're in more reproductive, quote-unquote, sense than normal. They're in must for much longer periods of time. But it doesn't mean that they're reproducing more. It just means that they're in that testosterone heightened state for longer mm -hmm. periods of time. Same with a male lion. A male lion is going to be the dominant male of a pride two, three, four years until he gets of age that a younger three, four-year-old lion kicks him out and oh. says, you're done. Mm -hmm. Go be by yourself. He's, not, he's probably not going to breed once he gets kicked out. Mm -hmm. um, same with buffaloes. Buffaloes, old dugger boys, standing by themselves, being kicked out the herd. Actually, they don't get kicked out the herd. They just leave because <laughs> they're old cantankerous curmudgeons that don't <laughs> want anything to do with the herd anymore. They're not breeding anymore. It's so... From a trophy hunting perspective, our brain says, again, from a science perspective, that is the animal to take mm -hmm. and, from yeah. a sustainability of wildlife perspective, as well as maintaining genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. Certainly those old mature <coughs> animals, males that have, that have bred, they're, you know, they're free in terms of any effect on the, on the, the gene pool. But even, even those are at the height of their, their breeding prowess and, and passing on a lot of genes, there's so many of these other diluting factors that removing that male is not going to negatively affect. Uh, so you said you had 10 obstacles in your, in mm -hmm. your article. Another important one is age. We think like, oh, hunters are killing the biggest animals, and, and people write about this in their articles, the biggest animals. Very often, those are the oldest animals. It's simply an age progression. They're killing the oldest animals, and they're not killing the genetically superior animals. And some of those 
two-year-old animals and three-year-old animals may have better genetics for horns or antlers, but they're just two and three years old. Has anyone shown that, though, Jim? Has anyone shown old animals reproduce less? Or less genetics, genetically superior, as you just said? Well, no, I wasn't saying that, they, that older animals are less genetically superior, but only that older animals are at the peak of their age to express their genetics. And, and some, there may be oh, some oh, younger oh, animals oh. that might be genetically superior. Superior, because not, but they haven't expressed it they're yet. They're not so old that you enough can't to see express it. their maximum genetic potential. Yeah. That's a fascinating piece because, yep. again, there's, we as humans associate... I don't think anybody actually... And this is sort of the penny dropping with me. Let's, I want to explore that because I don't think that's an argument that we've ever used in that you're making the assumption that the big male line that we're taking is the superior quote-unquote genetics of the population versus actually the two, three-year-old that we have now decided not to take because of an age-based quota. Mm-hmm could be genetically more superior than that older one. Yep, yep. We cannot make that assumption, that generalization, that because you're older, because your expression of your genetics in terms of mane, in terms of horn length, in terms of horn width, makes you more genetically superior. It just means that you're expressing it. We're just seeing it Mm -hmm. as a more... Mm -hmm. uh, Right, right. And so some, and you think about even horns and antlers, some of those younger animals, they're they don't look as nice as his older animals, but when they get to be that age, they may be a lot bigger mm. than those animals there. And so you have, you have a lot of people shooting the largest ram that they can find during their sheep hunt. It may be the oldest ram they can find during their sheep hunt. Mm-hmm. And the same with, same with elk and same mm-hmm. with mule deer. They just, they're shooting their oldest animals, and they have all of these other equally genetically valuable animals coming up through the age classes. And when they get to those older age classes, they'll look like that too. And certainly there is data to back up the assertion that older animals have larger genetic, no, have larger expressions oh, yeah. of antler size. Boone and Crockett Club, you know, number one being, right? That's yeah. the whole point of the club. <clears throat> right. It would be so valuable if we had ages for every animal in the Boone and Crockett record books, which we don't have, because um, Boone and Crockett scores Gosh, could are you not- imagine? Yeah. Could you imagine if we had that data? We, but when you yeah. score it, there's an age given to it. Yeah. Well, oh we, my God. we actually analyzed the Boone Crockett data set, working with Boone Crockett, a couple professional members of the Boone Crockett Club, including me, Kevin Monteith, uh, Taylor Lashar at University of Wyoming. We took that Boone Crockett uh, data, and actually Vern Blake, who's a, who's a measurer, we took that data set and we analyzed uh, the, the size of horns and antlers, actually all the big game species in North America, we were hampered by not having ages. Like you say, if we had ages for all oh that. Oh, my God. But we were still able to analyze it in some way, and, and we looked at, did, did it seem like, like um, nutrition had an effect on um, the trends in horn size and antler size, and it looked like hunter selection, and it was hard to get at that without age, but we, we did the best we can, and it seemed like there's a downward trend in like average antlers and average horns in a lot of North American species, but from our analysis, it looked like simply we've got younger age structures. We've got younger animals, and that's why they're smaller, um, the, a downward trend. So what you're seeing in the Boone and Crockett Club record book over time, I would assume almost looks like um, sort of a bell curve. Would, you, would, would it look like a bell curve in that over time you had this sort of ra- rising, 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 rising 
size structure of the animals in Boone and Crockett? Are you saying now we're seeing a, a decline because we're not seeing those older mature class animals being put into the book? I would say not a bell curve, but it started out when the record book started out. We had plateau. all these. We had it was really high. We had uh -huh. all these big animals, and then through time, through the 70s and 80s, we started. We didn't worry about trophy management, as people talk about. We didn't worry about managing populations for older age class. We people were just out there, especially like post World War II. Mm. People were out there just hunting, and and the age structures of all these populations went down because mm. we weren't managing for an older structure. So the the average size in a lot of these Boone and Crockett categories goes down gradually as we were hunting more and more intensively mm -hmm. and just there wasn't those, as many older animals out there but in recent decades you're starting to see some indications of increase as we do more management for an older age class so it seemed like an age effect oh, gotcha. rather than any kind of long-term genetic mm -hmm. change mm -hmm. so is it a fair statement from when sort of Pittman Robertson came into effect in the 30s Boone and Crockett Club came into effect thereafter to today, so 1930s to 2020, have we seen, is there a, a significant, I would agree, I would think, a significant positive correlation in antler and, not antler, you could even maybe say, but horn specifically, size in North American wildlife? Skull a, cor size. a correlation with what? With, with time. With time. We, we see a decreasing trend of, we see a hugely increasing trend of entry. That, that ramps way up. There's okay. more and more interest. Okay. So the entries goes way up. If you just look through a pretty complex um, analysis, if you just look at average horn size, taking into account a lot of these, a lot of variables, um, there's that decline and then some indication of some increase recently as we manage differently. But what, what would that look like as an overall trend? I know you keep talking about the, the decline halfway through and a ramp up, but mm -hmm. if you take it oh. just generally. Yeah, if you, took the, if you took the whole data set, it would be yeah. a decline. But that's being influenced by this lower age structure, lower, younger populations in a couple decades. Well, so the then let's be objective and let's take a step back. Because essentially what you've just said to me is it looks like our, age, our size structure, to, to the beginning of this conversation, looks like the size structure of this horn is actually going down. Yes, right. But it, it, is it due to hunting? In about, yes, it is because of hunting. But it's because hunters removing a greater percentage of the males in the population. And so what's remaining is a younger, younger average age of individuals. So not a genetic effect. Because, oh, and it's coming okay. back up as we relax hunt pressure on there. So it is due to hunting, but it's not due to selective hunting affecting the genetic. It's due to hunters just removing a greater percentage of males in the population. And we've got younger age structure. Like through the 70s, 80s, we were 80% so of the white tails. So there would be a strong decline in the 70s and 80s, yes. you would think. And like in, in 80s, when I hunted deer in, in uh, white-tailed deer in Wisconsin, 80% of the harvest was yearling. Okay, well, let, let's... And so you're not going to have an average age Did of, your analysis like, separate, separate out cervids and bovids? It, it did by species. Mm-hmm. And so would, you, would the decline be for every species? Mm -hmm. Because it's age-related. Because you've, you've got younger bull elk out there, younger mule deer out there, younger bighorn sheep rams, because they're hunted more intensively. Mm -hmm. And so size overall mm -hmm. declined for a lot of species. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a genetic selection. It was just yeah. a matter of take. With the research, we couldn't get at that, but it didn't, it didn't, the, the thing that made the most sense was we just simply lowered the age structure of the population. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had age, like we were talking about, for all those, you could really look at size 
per age, mm-hmm. size by age. Mm-hmm. And and actually Taylor Lashar <clears throat> for her master's degree at the University of Wyoming took a more intensive look. We we canvassed and I was involved in both of those research. We've got sheep records from all state and provincial agencies where they have ages. This is where the hunter harvests a sheep, checks it out, they age the sheep, they take horn measurements. So we had measurements and age for sheep. And she analyzed that and she divided out the different <clears throat> the different jurisdictions. And in some of them, like Alberta, that has the potential to have a higher selective uh, intensity because they have a lot of populations that still have horn curl restrictions and did mm-hmm. during this period of time with mm-hmm. the, the data set. In there, there were some indications that there could be some effect along with environment and everything else from selective because of that, that uh, the way that, that hunt, they hunted that. And in most of the areas, in the vast majority of the areas, there was no effect, even when you could look at age and you could look at size. Would you say in that age, that that time structure, 70s, 80s, there's obviously a a much stronger decline over that period. But now you said for the last two decades or so, we've seen a reversal. Yeah, we haven't. We completed that research a number of years ago, and I haven't seen like the last decade. So it's hard for me. It's hard for me to I don't have up to date information on that. But there was some indication of a flattening out and coming back up in more recent years as every agency is managing at least some populations for mature animals. Mm-hmm. Boone and Crockett still is not taking age into consideration in their database? There's been a lot of talk about that. They were going to upgrade their database. They were, they were going to, and I think they do ask for ages, but here we have um, Boone and Crockett measurers that have been trained in measuring horns and antlers and everything. They haven't been trained in aging. You know, having every Boone and Crockett measurer mm. to be a really good at aging all of those species, it's a daunt, that oh, would be a daunting sure. task. So, 100%. so it's not easy to just say, why don't they start collecting ages? You know, it's, it's just really hard. Yeah, you could see maybe potentially individuals being specialized in age classification of a specific animal. Yep. And maybe you get one or, you know, probably you, get, you, need, a, you need at least three. You can take photos and whatnot and send it to the three, let them decide. Right. Like we think it's mm-hmm. eight, nine, and ten. Okay, make an average mm-hmm. of it. It's nine. Yep. You know. So as a scientist, I would love to see that. From the Boone and Crockett perspective, they don't, they don't need age. That mm-hmm. would be really good for researchers. Mm-hmm. It would be really good to look at things like this, but that's not what they do. You know, mm-hmm. they're in the record-keeping business. And, and age, if age is really difficult to train a lot of people, I don't, you know, I don't see them spending resources to train people to age all the North American Well, to animals. start with, like, who's the expert, mm-hmm. right? To, to age these yeah. animals. And even among biologists, you'll get a variety of ages. So it's, Agreed. It's kind of a... Agreed. Yeah. Well, we sent an elephant, that big elephant that hit the ground in April last year. I got the tusks, photographs of the tusk, and I sent it to three different people and got three different ages. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, um, it happens with sheep, too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating. That obviously, there's, that rhetoric is never going to stop coming to us. No. Nope. But we should be talking about what we're talking about now. I mean, we should getting all we should get all the information out on the table, and so people have have the full breadth of knowledge. There's nothing wrong with that Ram Mountain science. It's an isolated small life uh, population with with somewhat unique hunting. It's, some of that has happened in other places in Alberta, but somewhat unique hunting structure, isolated. That population has bottled has has increased and decreased through the years. It's gone down to a level where there's only eight males eight rams in that population at one time mm-hmm. and then came back up so it went through this bottleneck which can affect genetics too so there's there's all kinds of unique features of that study population so i don't i don't criticize the work that there's some really good ecologists working on that population doing some really good stuff it's just my problem is you can't take that and extrapolate it to wild sheep management yeah. or big game yeah hunting yeah. um not appropriate 
No, I agree. And, you know, one of the things I wish we could, and that's why I sort of, we did the whole, how many sheep are in Arizona, how many sheep are taken. Right. It's you almost the intensity. It's the intensity. And when you look at the intensity of like elephant management, for instance, in Botswana, Botswana has, you know, based on the elephant working group, it's a non-hunting organization. I think I got the, I don't think it's the elephant working group. It's like elephants for the world, elephants. I don't know. It's an it's an NGO that does all the surveys for elephants in the in the triangle there. They estimate the Botswana elephant population to be stabilized around 125, 128,000. 128,000 elephants. And when you're taking 440 animals, mm-hmm. right? Number 1, that's 0.1%. It's a very 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 low percentage. Yes, you're taking big males, but to your point those males, specifically elephants, that have escaped. And, and I think right now we're almost in like the, the highlight period of elephant hunting because the elephants that escaped the 2012 poaching scenarios that were in the 30 to 35-year-old age class are now in the 40 to 55-year-old age class, which is the end game for elephants. Elephants do not get older than 55 years old. And they exponentially put on ivory between 45 and 55 in weight and in girth. So... Those are the elephants that are now in the population that have pushed their genes. Yes, they are reproductively mature, even more mature than they were in their 35s to 45s, but they are not breeding bulls of herds any longer. They are by themselves. Yes, they will breed if they're given the opportunity. It's so funny to hear you talk about age categories like that. It's <laughs> one idea was five years old. Oh, it's incredible, old. right? It's incredible. And that's why it's, again... The sentimentality around elephants and how long they live and whatnot adds to the fuel to the fire of this right. debate and this discussion. Um, but at the end of the day, if you've got an elephant that's been breeding for at least 20 years, you've got an elephant that's at the end of its age class, to your point that we've never actually used, how do we even know? And again, we don't, right? We don't mm-hmm. know if they're the most genetically superior right. animals. They may not yeah. be, but they may also be. Let's right. be honest and that's let's address exactly that right. straight up. So there's a 50-50 chance. We don't know. And the fact that the intensity of take is so, so low Mm -hmm. in a population that is so vast. Yeah, and and, and you've got environmental, nutritional effects in there. There's just so many different obstacles. If you wanted to change the genetics in an elephant population, you probably couldn't do it. I mean, unless you got into something like this widespread poaching where they're just like, just clearing off a large percentage of, of a certain trait in the population. Yeah, but that would, you, that would require 60,000 elephants, 70,000 yeah, right. elephants dying. <laughs> right. It's a lot of animals. <laughs> it's a lot. And, and honestly, when you flip the script, if you want to manage elephants, like we need to manage any other wildlife, there is a, there is a big, big wall coming which is we may be most, you know, Botswana, Zim, again, then you start wrapping yourselves into the whole, you know, idea of carrying capacity that is now being challenged. Like, do we actually know what carrying capacity mm-hmm. is and how big it is? And, and we don't. I would agree with, this, with the science. But there's, there has to be a point where you're like, is 130,000 elephants too much? Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. it is, by how much? Yeah. 50,000, which yeah. puts you at an 80,000 population? Well, how do you reduce it by 50,000 elephants? Yeah. And carrying capacity is fluctuating. You can have a wet decade and a dry decade. And there's so much complexity to the whole concept of carrying capacity. Yeah, you know, and carrying capacity, for those that don't know, carrying capacity is the ability for a certain ecosystem 
to hold a certain amount of biomass. Mm-hmm. And it, and again, so complicated because we all used to be like yeah. single species specific look. Like right. this is how many elephants, but without considering how many ungulates are on the landscape, mm-hmm. how much other biomass is on the line, the yeah. landscape. Yeah, that is a different perspective. And I don't think of that so much because of just how diverse wildlife is in, in Africa. You know, we think about whitetail carrying capacity because we're concerned about managing whitetails. But when you're managing this whole suite of ungulates, then you don't. Yeah, you there's you not much. The uh, there's not specific. much else in the landscape from a whitetail perspective, like mm-hmm, in the right. southeast. Mm-hmm. That's what you've got to worry about. That's yeah. going to create the browse line. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think much about that. Huge, diverse guilds of ungulates and the overall carrying capacity. Yeah, and how they interact with one another. You know, yeah. this is yeah to div- to you know boil it down to like a single species and it's this much. It, I can understand now why the the science of carrying capacity, specifically in Africa, is being challenged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, I know it's always a pleasure. Um, I always, always, always enjoy talking to you. Yeah, I'm sure it's not going to be the last time. Yep, hope not. And uh, yeah, if anything, you know, controversial rears <laughs> its head, you know where to, you know where to go. Why? Why is that? It seems like oh, Heffelfinger is here to talk yeah. about something controversial. But <laughs> and, and no, I, it's it's not that. It's you're not afraid to have mm-hmm. hard conversations. And and I deal in the the nuance. The problem is people just want to. 3,000 foot level discussion that's easy for them. And then other people keep parroting that same mm-hmm. message, whether it's trophy hunting or whether it's um, some of these other things. And, and I look at the science and I, uh, I'm very often in the position of saying, well, wait a minute, there's some science in here that nobody's yep. talking about. Yep. And some of the stuff everybody is talking about is it's way more nuanced than that. And let's talk about the nuance. That's where I get, unfortunately, where I get into it. Society. Oh, they don't moving. want nuance. Further and further away from nuance. <laughs> yep, exactly. They don't want And that's nuance. the world you live in, and uh-huh. that's the, the world that I live in. They want something they can scroll, pause, scroll, mm-hmm. and that, that's This the is it black, it. and this is it white. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it's really like mm-hmm. yeah. somewhere in the middle. Rarely that. Mm-hmm. Well, man, I appreciate you, and uh, I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, great being here. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.